Well, this Sunday is Epiphany Sunday, as we've mentioned. Epiphany means unveiling or seeing. You know the word. You might say, ah, I just had an epiphany. Right, which means you, you saw something in a new and a fresh light. So it speaks of the unveiling of Christ, the light of Christ going out to the nations. And it's always celebrated by the church right after Christmas. Right, because the Magi, far, far off Gentiles, come, as we just heard read in the gospel lesson, They come bringing homage and gifts to Christ, the newborn king. And so, Epiphany begins when the Son of God, who is God of God, light of light, takes on flesh and enters the world. In that sense, the church is always and forever in the season of Epiphany. We live in the era of of the light of Christ. And this light was spoken of, you can see this in the readings this morning, it was spoken of and predicted by the prophets. We saw that in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 60. It begins in earnest with the worship of the Magi, which we heard in the Gospel lesson. And then it's carried on in the church's proclamation of the Gospel the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile together in one body, and we saw that in the New Testament lesson from Ephesians 3. So today our text is going to be the prophecy, the foreseen vision of the epiphany from Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, and we'll make three points. They're there in the back of your bulletin. The glory, the gathering, and the gifts. The glory, the gathering, and the gifts. So, first the glory. So this is Isaiah 60, verse 1. The text begins with two imperatives, two commands. The two commands are, arise, shine. It's a direct summons of God to the church. Why, why is Zion summoned this way? Because, the text says, Her light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. So your arising, your shining forth, is a reflex. It's a reflection of light which has been received. Even as the moon reflects the light of the sun, so the church reflects or refracts the glory of God. The glory of the Lord, then, this means the Lord's own splendor, His radiance, His holy goodness, His beauty rises upon His people. It's the source of all the light in this text. So here in Isaiah 60, that glory rises upon Zion. Now, in the New Testament, it rises upon the people who live and have their being in the heavenly Zion, namely the church. 
So it's very important not to glide over this. The source of all the grandeur and all the glory and all the radiance and all the beauty here is the triune God himself. Against the backdrop of darkness and thick darkness over the peoples, Christ arises. God shows his glory in the world in the face of Jesus Christ. God irradiates his people. He transfigures his people. We have no intrinsic light. We receive it. And so this Zion, this heavenly Zion of which we are members, is a community which receives and which basks in, right, which indwells and assimilates and inhabits this light. For the Lord who has arisen summons us to arise. Right? The Lord who has arisen summons us to arise and to shine. So what's happening in this text, big picture, is the glory of Christmas is bleeding over into the glory of Epiphany. Or, we could say the glory of the incarnate Christ is being made visible in the glory of the body of Christ. So, the fruit of this, this radiance, is seen far and wide in the text. If you look at Isaiah 60, verse 3, it says, Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Right, the common people and their leaders will see this glory. Internationally, across all social boundaries, this reflected light of Zion, right, the glory of God refracted through the church, shines in the world like a beacon or a lighthouse, and it gathers Gentile nations into the Zion of God. Now in this era, in the church, into the heavenly Zion. So that's the glory, the gathering. That gathering I just mentioned is what we want to talk about next. The nations coming means people from all nations are going to stream into Zion. The text tells us who comes. Sons and daughters. Children, Paul says, of the heavenly Jerusalem, who is our mother. There's a gathering. Glory arises and the glory creates a gathering. Or as the hymn puts it, elect from every nation. Thus you get verse 4. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and they come to you. Who comes? Sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. The Apostle John sees this very scene in Revelation. He sees the church gathered to Mount Zion, which for John and for us is a heavenly locale. And he sees a great multitude from out of every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation. Right? This is how the New Testament interprets this gathering. 
So God is gathering a single holy nation from the nations. That is what Zion is. That is what the church is. It's a kingdom out of the kingdoms of the world. That gathering is what we're doing in the work of the gospel. We are gathering people, not to Westminster in any primary way. It's important to remember this, right? In the New Testament, the church has earthly coordinates. Like there's an address. You can find this place on your GPS. It has earthly coordinates, but its real locale is in heaven. The place it exists, where its citizenship is, right? We are gathering children there to the city of God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the place to which we and these sons and daughters from afar have already come. It's somewhat shocking and counterintuitive that this gathering does not take place right at 614 Station Road is not the primary location of this gathering. We can, in fact, the text commands us in verse 4, we can actually lift up our eyes and see. But I can do that from here. Right? The remnant of Israel and Gentiles from the ends of the earth. Right? Assembled to the Zion of God. And in the text, you can feel the joy, the sort of bubbling over uh, of this, the result of it emotionally and psychologically for the church. Verse 5 says, Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. I mean, this isn't a, a bountiful international gathering. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And it brings great gladness to the city of Zion. It's taxing. It's taxing to live as the church for a long time when there is no growth. It's a wonderful thing to see the church grow. It makes people happy. That's what the text says. You'll look, you'll see, you'll be radiant. I mean, imagine if the growth were fueled largely by conversions and by adult baptisms and by professions of faith. That's the kind of growth that's envisioned in this text. Indeed, it's not only envisioned, it's prophesied and guaranteed by the prophet. And it causes Zion to be radiant with joy. I'll say something here that is maybe a little against the grain to to the ears of some Reformed people, but Jesus expects the church to grow. Now get these next two words that I'm going to say. In numbers. There are so many people in the circles that I swim around in that are like, well, we just don't, we're not going to focus on numerical growth. Well, tell that to Isaiah. This looks a lot like numerical growth to me. There are literally hundreds of prophecies where, where the Old Testament, or dozens, where the, where the Old Testament prophet is saying, there'll be so many sons and daughters, you won't have room for them in the land. 
And then we're like, well, you know, we got to be really careful. I mean, we don't want to. Yes, true, that's true. There's a lot of excesses on the church growth end of the spectrum. Jesus promises and pledges that his own glory will grow in the earth in numbers. That's why, as a general rule, not as an invariable law, of course not, there are exceptions. But as a general rule, growth means both spiritual growth and an abundant harvest of souls. It's very difficult to have one of those without the other. Very difficult. So that's the gathering. Finally, let's look at the gifts. The glory causes a great in gathering, and the gathered ones, they come with gifts. Verse 5 says, The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of the nation shall come to you. Now, I want to say two things about this phrase, the wealth of nations. First, it means that the cultural products of the redeemed serve the church and her work in this age. That's pretty obvious, I think, that that happens. When we come to Christ, we come with all our wealth and all our gifts and all our talents. But, and this is the second thing here, we must not think that we are simply moving from an earthly Old Testament Zion to an earthly New Testament Zion in Christ. There is no earthly Zion in the New Covenant. There's no earthly holy city that we're building. There are communities which have earthly outward locations which are in the end scaffolding to the building God is building. The building that God is building descends from heaven at the end of the age. So the building we're building, the city we're building, is a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly city, the Zion, which is from above. So the gifts then. So this is Isaiah 60, verse 6. In verse 6 and in the rest of the chapter, the gifts are put in the language of Israel's time. And they include things, if you look at the list of the wealth that the nations bring into Zion here. They include things like flocks, rams, camels, various precious metals. It even includes a labor force, foreigners to work on your walls. All the gifts, we are told in verse 7, are not really for making the church wealthy. They're offerings. That's the key thing to see about the gifts. They're offerings. They're ways to beautify the house of God. So if you look at verse 7, it says the animals go up with acceptance on the altar. You know, the rams, the camels, right? The wealth comes in and it's offered up. The wealth facilitates the worship of the triune God. So, for example, later in the chapter, the walls of the city. So earlier in the chapter, we're told foreigners are going to come and work on the walls of this city. Later in the chapter, we're told that the walls are called salvation. So what does the wealth of the nations do here? Well, it helps propagate the gospel of salvation. The walls are called salvation. And the gates through which all the gifts come, the gates are called praise. The text tells you that. 
The primary gift is praise. I'll come back to that in a minute. The overseers, this is right after our text, right? A few verses after Isaiah 60, verse 7. That is, the people who are using all the gold and silver and building the city, the overseers are called peace. And the taskmasters, the one who are gathering all this wealth of the nations, who oversee all the work with it, the taskmasters are called righteousness. So the wealth of the nations refers to the gifts of the Spirit, particularly the praise of the redeemed flowing into Zion. So in other words, this is the third or fourth time I've mentioned this, the chapter points us to the heavenly Zion and to the fact that the gifts here are primarily praise, offerings, thanksgiving, ascribing glory to God. Again, this is not to deny that the hard-earned wealth is brought into the church and used for the kingdom. It's simply to affirm that the church's earthly sanctuaries, her earthly outward life should not be conflated with or collapsed into the Zion which the text has in view. Right? We know this, I think, from the gospel in the New Testament. Whatever wealth serves the Zion of God has to be wealth that has currency in heaven, in the heavenly tabernacle, because that's where our treasure is. That's where our wealth is. So the city that's being built, the city that's being restored, is no earthly city. So in verse 6, and now verse 6 is one of the key background texts for the Magi coming to Christ. They come to visit, right? And they bring gold and they bring frankincense. But that's simply an outward symbolic offering of what they are really bringing. Right? The text actually tells you what they're bringing. It says they're, they're, they're coming, proclaiming good news and declaring the praises of the Lord. So to put it simply, praise is the chief part of the wealth of the nations which comes into this Zion. You know where there's a wonderful comment on this? It's in 1 Peter 2, where he says that God called the Gentiles out of darkness into his marvelous light, same language as this text, so that they might declare or render praise of his excellence. And so we have here the building of a heavenly city, a city which descends at the end of the age. Right after this text in Isaiah, then it becomes clear that Isaiah is depicting something in earthly language, which can only be satisfied in the new Jerusalem or in the eternal state. If you read through the whole chapter of Isaiah 60, you'll see that it alludes to Revelation 21 numerous times. And there, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, after the second coming, after the destruction of Satan, after the destruction of death and hell and the beast, and after the great white throne judgment, the heavenly city, the bride, is fully irradiated with the glory of God. That's the first thing that's said about her, and that evokes verse 1 of our text. 
Arise, shine, the glory of Christ has come and risen upon you, and that points to this consummate glory. There in Revelation 21, the nations are seen gathered through the gates of the heavenly Zion, and they bring in their gifts. They do it in the face of God, before the face of God, in the very light of glory. Listen to these words. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. That sounds like the new creation at the end of the book of Revelation, doesn't it? But it's not. It's verses 19 and 20 of this chapter of Isaiah 60. Isaiah is pointing to that day. So this vision that he has of this restored Zion, restored by the light and glory of God, a vision, by the way, which has already attracted the nations. It has its fullness. It lies in the future, in the new Jerusalem. This vision should make us more eager right, to use our gifts and our talents, and our wealth for the Lord's work, right? It should make us more easy. You know why? Because we're not laboring like Israel of old for an earthly tabernacle or sanctuary. We're storing up treasure. By the way, same idea, same linguistic idea as the idea of wealth in the text. We're storing up treasure in heaven, treasure which can't be corroded or stolen. We send our treasure up and out on ahead. It's only right then, it's only right for us that our hearts and our treasure be in heaven as Jesus commands because they're attached to this city, right? This glorious, restored, heavenly Zion. So let me close with two points. I'm going to call these two applications, if you will, magnetic and missionary. First one is magnetic. It's easy to glide, as I said, past the beginning of this text. And I I think that's probably, you know, perhaps a fault that we might have with this text. None of this text works until we seek to be a people, to become a people who have the light and the splendor and the glory of the triune God pervading every fiber of our being. You know, the church fathers used to speak of bearing the divine glory. They used language that would be offensive to many Protestants. They actually would say things like, Jesus became man so that man can become God. They spoke of deification. What they meant, they would use this analogy. They would say that to be irradiated with the glory of God is a lot like a piece of iron that you would take and you would you know, shove it into a fire until it was glowing and burning hot. You pull it out, right? It's still iron. 
you're still human, but you've got the stuff of God in you. You're irradiated by the divine glory. You burn with the glow of the divine glory. That's what you're called to be as a human creature. Do you understand that? Right? You're not, you, are, you are not simply called to be a creature who's adopted a new set of ideas and gets some heavenly aid to live a better life. You are called to be an irradiated, transfigured, divinely flooded creature. That's what the call of the Christian life is. And this, beloved, is the magnet, the magnetism that draws the nations. It's perhaps, um, doesn't need to be said that perhaps the nations are not being drawn because we're not glowing. We're not irradiated with the glory of the triune God. This is the magnet which draws the nations. Now, many of you have, to be sure, magnetic personalities. But we're not talking about that here. We're not talking about that kind of magnetism. What I'm trying to get at here is this. Now, notice this. In this text from Isaiah 60, Israel doesn't do anything. She does no missionary work. She makes no overtures to the nations. You know what she does? She arises and shines. That's it. The whole world is saved when you shine. And you shine when the radiant glory of the triune God shines in and through you. It's an astonishing thing. Israel does nothing in the text. It reminds me of what we were looking at in John's Gospel where Jesus says, "Um, I have given them your glory so the world would know the Gospel. Glory is the church's greatest need. Her greatest needs are not administrative. They are not even tactical. They are not even strategic. Glory is the church's greatest need. I remember being at a presbytery meeting a couple years ago, and there was a candidate, and he was being examined. And one of the brothers stood up and asked him, what do you think is the most important doctrine that the church needs to defend today in the midst of this cultural milieu we're in? And I thought to myself, I'm not going to like this answer. And I'm, and I'm, sure, I, I'm not sure the questioner is looking for something else. But the point is, you never get this answer. You never get the doctrine of God, the glory of God. Instead, you get something about the doctrine of man because of all the gender confusion in the culture or something like that. Which is not to say that stuff's unimportant. But glory is always the church's greatest need because God is always the church's greatest need. There's no set of cultural situations that can change that. The church's greatest need is always to be irradiated, flooded with the light and glory of the triune God. And this glory exerts a magnetic pull on the nations. And so the second thing here is is missionary. So it's true, Israel did not have a missionary, an outward facing role in the text. But it's clear in the New Testament, very clear, that the nations come because we go. 
Right? The nations come because we go. We heard this morning of the evangelism class starting next week. We are committed to equipping ourselves to reaching our neighbors and friends with the light of Christ's epiphany. And by God's mercy, we pray that this is not going to be a fad, but something we get into our DNA. And as we see God move and and touch and convert and redeem people, your hearts are going to thrill and be radiant and throb. We're called to gather God's chosen ones with all of their talent and all of their treasure into the heavenly city. We know this, right? Because there's, there's this great pilgrimage. It started with the Magi. And it has gone on for 2,000 years. But there are yet kings and there are yet nations that are waiting for the brightness of your rising. Right? There are neighbors and friends who are waiting for the brightness of your rising. So I urge you strongly to attend, to participate in that class. If you, if you want to know practically how you can arise and shine, start with attending the class. That's how. Here are the words of Methodius. He's a third century Christian bishop and martyr. He, he exhorts us this way. He says, Hail and shine, thou Jerusalem, for thy light has come, the light eternal, the light forever enduring, the light supreme, the light immaterial, the light of the same substance with God the Father, the light that is in the Spirit, the light that illumines the ages, the light that gives light to all things, Christ our very God. Amen. Amen.